I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's Sponsored Insight is Adam Carr, President and Portfolio Manager at Orbis, a $35 billion global equity manager founded in 1989 by legendary Fidelity alum Alan Gray. Orbis blends unique business practices with a long-term intrinsic value investment model designed to invest differently. Our conversation dives into Orbis's business practices intended to create alignment, including a fee structure with rebates and permanent ownership model. We then go through the investment approach that features 35 analyst shadow portfolios to bring data and independent thinking to portfolio construction. Orbis's model has rich lessons for managers and allocators alike. Before we get going, it's that special time of year when the summer winds down and we get back to school. But the school you have in mind isn't the one I'm talking about. Sure, back to school means kids finally get back in their routines and leave a little more quiet around the house. Not so good for them, pretty darn good for us. But it also means it's back to football and time to school those in your fantasy football league. In addition to creating very strange rooting alliances while watching NFL games on Sundays, every league creates its own form of long-term bonding and relationships. And I'm all for that. I play in just one, a family league with my two boys, my brother, their two kids, my brother-in-law, and their two sons. It's our third year in the league, and somehow my oldest son, Ryan's name, adorns the trophy from each of the first two seasons. Ryan's my older son, He's the same one who doesn't take well to math or really any other subject at school, but he seems to snake his way into the playoffs and dominate from there. He's also not a bad trash talker in the midst of it. Now, I'd like to steer you to a Capital Allocators episode that will help uncover the secret to winning your fantasy league. But outside of a football-themed show with Michael Lombardi, baseball analytics with Michael Schwimmer, and even a touch of soccer or European football analytics in episode one with Steve Galbraith, I'm afraid I've got nothing for you. Better to listen to Bill Simmons for that. So as you get back to school in whatever form it takes, you may also want to get back into the habits of writing and public speaking. For writing, I'd suggest practicing writing a wildly positive review on iTunes for the show. Feel free to use ChatGPT if that helps. And for speaking, repetition matters before you get on stage. So go ahead and tell everyone in your site about capital allocators, not fantasy football allocation, unfortunately. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam Carr. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. Ted, it's great to be here. Why don't you take me back to your first interest in investing? Ted, it's been a journey. I'm a non-traditional for sure. I'm a big believer in serendipity and return on luck, and I've had lots. And so when I go back, I first became captivated with investing when I was in middle school. 
This is in the late 70s, early 80s. I grew up in Illinois, south suburbs, about an hour south of Chicago. And I spent a lot of time with my grandfather growing up. He's my hero, hardest working person I've ever seen. During the day, he used to work in a factory. And at night, he was a janitor in the savings and loan. And I used to go with him every night to clean the bank, to mop floors and dump out waste paper baskets. And I like to say, I joke that in other people's garbage, I found treasure. And there was this really odd looking newspaper that was different than any of the other newspapers. And it had these funny dot matrix photos, if you remember going back. So of course, it's the Wall Street Journal. And I was just fascinated by it. I can't say that I understood what it was, but was asking questions. And that was really my first taste. And on Friday nights, we didn't have to go to the bank because you could go on Saturday. And my grandfather used to love to watch Louis Rukeyser's Wall Street Week. So that was every Friday night. In the beginning, that was just a way to spend time with my grandfather. But over time, it just really fostered this interest and curiosity in markets. Going all the way back, it was really cultivated from those earliest days. From that initial exposure, how did you get from there to the path of a career? When I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to go to college, but I didn't know how first in my family to go to college. And so my strategy was to go into the military. So I went to test, I took the entrance exam, the ASVAB, and I'll never forget, the officer came back and he said, you scored really high, you should think about going to college. And that sounds good, but how does that work? And he said, well, they have these ROTC ships and you should really think about it. I said, okay. So interesting thing, and I don't know why, is I wanted to be a Marine for whatever reason. And in Illinois, there are only two schools that have Marine ROTC ships, Northwestern and University of Chicago. Turns out I was lucky that they happened to be pretty good schools. And I applied to one school. I applied to Northwestern because they had just placed in the top 10 NCAAs in wrestling and they were D1. And that was the reason. And the way that the RTC works is you have to be accepted by the school first. And I got accepted and I got a full ride, full scholarship. And so it was really by accident that I ended up at Northwestern. And then this is comical in hindsight, but I saw the movie Wall Street when I was in college with Michael Douglas. I was like, I want to go to Wall Street. And I was recollecting Lewis and earliest days. And I found this program called SEO, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And I applied and got accepted and was placed at DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret. And that was just a phenomenal experience for me. Really entrepreneurial firm, did a lot of high yield, was in the merchant banking group. But what was it about the movie Wall Street that captivated you? It was the energy and the competitive nature. I'd always been interested in markets. And I felt like being in New York City was the place to be, right? And so that was really the call. What did you see when you got to DLJ? It was a game changer. Going to Northwestern, same thing at DLJ. You're playing junior varsity and you get bumped up and sort of everybody is bigger and faster and hits harder. And funny story, I'd never had a suit before. And so my first day, I had suspenders on which if you know is the no-no in investment banking culture is the junior person. As they took me around to introduce me, all of the managing directors would grab my suspenders and snap them. I haven't worn suspenders since. 
And I think what I realized being from Northwestern and the Midwest, that pretty much everybody that was there was from East Coast, Ivy League. A lot of folks didn't even know what Northwestern was as an institution. And I think one of the things that really dawned on me is having kind of a calling card, if you will. And so when I went back after that summer, I applied to business schools. And so I applied to HBS when I was 19 in college. And they accepted you at the time contingent on a couple years of work experience. So that's what I did. Coming out of HBS, what did you think about doing? So when I went to HBS, I knew that I wanted to invest, but that's a wide purview. Didn't know how. And I was thinking about the public side as well as the private side. And what I did for the summer, I actually split my summer. Half of it was at Orbis doing public market investing with the global purview. And then the other half was at a distressed turnaround firm. And so it was a really good exposure to see both sides and what are you most acclimated to. And at the end of the summer, my view was I like the public side, just the behavioral aspects of it. And so that was my intention. But three of the folks that I worked with at that private equity firm had left to start their own new private equity firm and invited me to join them in founding that. And I felt like that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I didn't dislike it. So let me go for that. We launched, we were backed by Cerberus originally doing distress turnaround investing, invested two funds. We were raising our third fund. I'm now five years in. And I was just having a honest conversation with myself. I like this, but I don't love it. And spending a lot of time on the weekends and getting upset when some of the CEOs of my companies call because I'm thinking about some public idea that I like, I got to give this a go. And so I stepped back as a partner and started over on the public side. And that's when I joined Orbis in 2002. So what was Orbis back then? Orbis was founded in 1989 by Alan Gray, who's a South African. And he immigrated to the US from South Africa in the early 60s to go to HBS. And then out of school, he joined Fidelity, was a PM there for about 10 years. And then he returned back to South Africa in the early 70s to found his own firm, his namesake, Alan Gray Limited, which to this day, they're celebrating their 50th anniversary in South Africa. They're quite well known. But I guess it would have been in the late 80s during the apartheid movement, there was an appetite for investing outside of South Africa. And so that was a catalyst for him to leave South Africa. And in 1990, he founded Orbis as a global investment manager. So we're a global equity specialist. We manage about $35 billion in AUM across the globe and a handful of strategies, long only, absolute return, multi-asset. Our global equity strategy is our flagship strategy, about 60-70% of our AUM is in global. Most of our AUM is institutional. We've got a little bit of retail in the UK and Australia. And our investment approach is pretty simple. We're fundamental bottoms-up intrinsic value investors. And I should emphasize intrinsic value because we're not quantitatively cheap deep value managers. We spend a lot of time thinking about the companies as owners, owning the business as, as holistic owners. Our analysts run paper portfolios, which is something pretty unique. And I think one of the big aspects of Orbis, a belief of value, is the significance of alignment. We think a lot about that. It permeates everything. Let's dive into that because alignment can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. How have you interpreted 
how to create alignment between you and your investors? There are many ways, right? And we try to think about all of them. So our philosophy is one where we're tending to go to places, companies that are out of favor, contrarian opportunities. So that means we're going to look quite different to the market. And we're definitely going to go through periods of underperformance where we're going to be out of sync. And so aligning with the right client base is really critical to allow you to do that. What do we do? The ideal way to structure a fee would be at the end of their time with you, you would look back and you would say, well, what value did we add for you? And you would share that. Now, it's really impractical to run a business (laughs) on that basis. So what's as close as you can get to replicate that? On our long-only strategies, we have a refundable performance fee. For our larger institutional clients, there's a zero base fee. So if we don't add value, generate alpha, client pays zero fee. If we generate outperformance, we share that with a client whereby we earn a third of that. Now, interestingly, the way that we structure it is it goes into a trust count or what we call a bucket, and you build up a reserve, and then it only flows out to us after it reaches certain thresholds. But importantly, we refund that fee back to clients during periods when we underperform, and that's the really important part. A lot of interesting dynamics to that. The first I would ask is, how do you stabilize your business if there's no known management fee? It's difficult to do, as you've just drawn out. So we debated this quite a bit internally amongst the firm partnership. And in undertaking it, we reserved on our balance sheet for a number of years so that we could dampen the volatility. Essentially, this is shifting the volatility of that performance stream to us, which is what we want to do. But we have to make sure that we structure ourselves in a way that can absorb that volatility. And the way that we did that was by reserving on our balance sheet to give us the capital base to absorb that. How far along did you go with a more industry standard management fee structure so that you had these reserves that you could create this ability to refund the performance fee? We launched the refundable fee strategy in 2004. And it was a multi-year period that we went through that we were reserving on our balance sheet. Now, also consider that each client has an individual trust or reserve account that they're also building a reserve in. And so the fee will not flow out to us until it reaches certain thresholds. So it's two layers. So it was really a multi-year period. But I think looking back, it's been fantastic because it's a very powerful mechanism to align You go through those periods when you're underperforming, but if you're sitting on a reserve and you're earning back that fee, one, it dampens the underperformance. That's really good. Two, you're very reticent to want to redeem when you've got a credit in your account. That's also fantastic, right? Because it's promoting exactly the kind of behavior that you'd want to see when you're against the market and you're underperforming. And that puts us in a better position to make the best decisions in those periods. So conceptually, that makes all the sense in the world. What have you seen in practice in terms of your client behavior during periods of underperformance? The best test case that we have is going back to the JFC in 2008. We don't have lockups. We don't have gates. And we saw less than 10% net redemptions in an environment when 
the global indices were down 35%. Without going into the math, which I know is a little intricate, how do you think about the amount of reserve that makes sense relative to what it takes to stabilize the business? Let's think about it in two ways. One is from the perspective of the client and what's in the reserve account and what's on our balance sheet, right? And so I think it's more straightforward from the perspective of us as a firm, right? Because we're just thinking, let's look forward, multi-year basis, and what would we need to be able to absorb assuming that we're not generating any operating cash flow to the firm, which is exactly what we did. So we built multi-year reserves. How many years could you go without outperformance in that balance sheet reserve that you have as a firm before you'd start to worry about the long-term sustainability of Orvis? We've been quite conservative in that. And it's going to depend because we've got clients across the globe and they're on different fee structures and they're not on exactly the same fee. So there's a mix in there, but it's more than a handful of years. What are some of the other ways that you've thought about alignment in the business? The other one that I'll touch on is our ownership structure. So we're quite unique in this dimension as well. We are privately owned by a charitable foundation in perpetuity. And so that's really powerful in aligning incentives because the whole premise from an investment standpoint is we want to take independent contrarian decisions. If I go back to 1995 when I first met Alan when I was in business school, the very first meeting, he said to me, if you want to generate a meaningful alpha, you have to come at the problem completely differently. You got to turn it on its head. If you look like everyone else, you're going to have average results like everyone else. So simple in concept, difficult to execute in practice. And it means that you are going to be under pressure at times and you're going to be out of sync. And so when we took on the decision to launch the refundable fee reserve, that would be very difficult for a lot of firms. There's no way you could do it if you're a public firm, but many private partnerships even, I think, would struggle with that decision. There's a lot of talk around having permanent capital. Well, what about permanent long-term ownership? And so it's really meant to reinforce us being in a position to take those kind of decisions. How does the compensation structure work for the portfolio managers, the people on the team that are generating that alpha if the ultimate ownership is in the hands of a foundation? We are owners. We participate in the firm, the most senior group of investors and leaders in the firm, which we call stewards. And we're directly tied to the operating profits of the firm. But what's unique about it is we have that interest while we're here in the seat driving, and then we have tails to that interest, which is for 12 years. But after 12 years, that reverts back to the firm for that next generation of investment leaders. And so that allows it to have sustainability and continuity over time. How have you found the ownership dynamics impact the employees relative to other, say, more typically structured ownership organizations? Let's just say private partnership, leave aside the public companies. A couple different dimensions to that, but I think the biggest is just knowing that you've got that long-term aligned owner. We went through a leadership transition a couple of years ago in this industry that can be difficult. But having this in place created a lot of clarity around the control owner and how that transition would take place. And I would argue that's quite valuable in fostering continuity. 
Now, there's another dimension on the other side, which is that entity is a charitable foundation. And so the more value that we create in our investing efforts has an impact on the other side. And so there's a bit of a self-selection. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar to what you see the people that are drawn to university endowments in terms of there's a deeper mission behind it that has a larger impact. And I think that's something certainly felt by myself, but many other individuals in the firm as well. You can imagine in a situation like that, you're not able to compensate people on your team as much as maybe a comparable position somewhere else because the foundation is trying to do what the foundation is trying to do in the world. How has that played out in terms of talent retention? So our commitment to our team is to compensate them economically on a market basis, right? So that's what we do. I think one of the very strongly held beliefs and values of the firm is being quite objective and merit-based in how we recruit and reward people. So there isn't a trade that because of this structure, you're in a position that you're not being remunerated on a basis. And it all comes back to the alpha in the sense that all of our fee structures are on a performance fee basis. That's really what drives. A lot of organizations, you have a lot of talented people and there's someone, the ultimate owner, maybe at the top who you could say has a disproportionate amount of the rents. Now you have a foundation at the top. How do you determine the distinction between what the foundation keeps in terms of economics and the team who's doing all the work below it? If you look at the trustee of the foundation, they have a dual purpose. The purpose is to ensure the long-term continuity of Orbis. In order to do that, what do you need to do? You need to attract and retain the very best people. So the individuals that sit in that entity understand that fiduciary responsibility quite well and act to that. Within this structure, you have to put in an investment product underneath it. So let's turn to that. How do you think about investing? You go back to, I mentioned that very first conversation that I had with Alan and if you want to drive a really meaningful alpha, you have to come at the problem completely different, which means you need people who are very independent-minded. So the core, core DNA, if you think about it as a flywheel, right at the top is people and culture. And it's people that are intrinsically independent-minded and driven. And so then you need to create an environment and a culture and you need to reward in a way that attracts and retains those kind of really independent-minded people. So the big way that we do that is all of our analysts run paper or shadow portfolios. So we've got 35 analysts around the globe. And after generally a year or two, they will launch a paper portfolio. And that tends to be a concentrated expression of, call it their 10 highest conviction recommendations in a particular either sector or geography. And that's meant to be very objective about what one is expressing. So not picking on any particular firm, but a lot of firms, you have analysts and they will go around, they will quote unquote, pitch their ideas. You're trying to sell. I think we come at it the opposite direction, whereby when an idea is recommended to be purchased on behalf of clients, we call it a thesis defense. 
much more like in academia when you're presenting your PhD and you have peers around and they're critiquing it and giving feedback, but it's very much what you believe rather than trying to sell someone else. And most objectively, it's when something comes to investment committee, as you go away as an analyst, you make a decision to buy or sell that and what aggression in your portfolio and you're remunerated and compensated for that. And the portfolio manager is doing the same thing is they're making an independent decision as to what action they want to take. And we spend a lot of time tracking that data. It's a very powerful tool for us as a firm to evaluate talent and zero in and identify areas of skill and superpower. And it's equally quite powerful for the analyst to use as a tool to get direct, objective, tangible feedback. With your 35 analysts geographically spread, how do you communicate as a team? We've got five teams around the globe headquartered in Bermuda, which is where we trade. Our largest concentration of analysts is in London. We've got a team in Hong Kong, our EM team. And then our US team is in San Francisco, which is where I reside. In many respects, We've always been conditioned to communicate across teams because we've operated that way for quite some time. And the belief in that is there's real power that comes from having investment teams that are on the ground in those local markets that understand the culture, the mores, and the distinct attributes of those markets. At the same time, you've got your folks in London who are looking at those sectors across the globe and they're seeing that pattern recognition. And the intersection of those two is something that we've believed in quite a bit. And so we've worked that way for a long time, but I think going through COVID just accelerated that. Not only how we work, but how we're able to engage with management teams. Old days, you had to go see them or you were on a phone call, but today you can get them on a Zoom or Teams with pretty low friction. And so this digital interface, I think, has closed those gaps quite a bit, and it's just accelerated our ability to do that. In practice, for me, it means that I'm up early quite a bit. Within any one of those analyst sectors or geographies, is there a shared style for what an Orbis company is? There's space within that, but at the core, we're fundamental investors. We're not trying to impose a macro view. We're going deep, bottoms up. We want to understand the business well, and we're thinking, what would a sophisticated owner pay for this business? And that can be different if you're in an asset-heavy business or software business, but what would a sophisticated owner pay for this business? And we're looking to buy that at a meaningful discount to that. Generally speaking, we know markets are efficient, but they go through periods when they get wide, and we're looking to go after them in those periods when they get wide. And more often than not, the reason that they get wide is there's some kind of behavioral element. They've underperformed, they're out of favor, there's a fear associated. We are drawn to those types of situations to really come to a first principles, intrinsic value view of what we think this is worth, and then take those positions. When you go through your process of looking at ideas that could work their way into your portfolio, Does that start at that analyst level in the shadow portfolios? Are there other mechanisms that you guys use to generate ideas? One of the things that's pretty distinctive about us at Orbis is we have 
a very rigorous phased research process called phase one, phase two, phase three. And in front of that is idea generation. And it's two parts. One, it's quantitatively driven. The typical stuff that you'd see, we have internal proprietary models. It's largely reversion to mean driven, those models. And the other side is qualitative. Some of my best ideas are existing ideas where you have an insight. But that's what drives it. And one of the interesting things I'd just say as a side point is we have this incredible data set across all of these paper portfolios going back since inception. And we're now using AI to replicate what we would have been buying based on the historical algorithms of what we were doing. Now, that doesn't drive it to be in the portfolio, but we're using it as an idea generation mechanism to say, looking at what we've done historically and identifying ideas, what would the models be saying we would be doing right now? What's an example of how that works? Some of the cyclical retail sectors in the US right now are being flagged. They're under a lot of pressure right now, and they're being flagged in the system. Now, where the real work happens, it's identifying that space, but then within that, selecting those that have durability and can really be the ones that will survive and be the alpha generators. That's the phase one, phase two, phase three process. So idea generation is phase one, and that's about a day of work. And it's really just what would be the thesis here? What are the key questions? A lot of the work is automated with historical financials and some charts that are proprietary to us. And the big question there is, should we spend more time on it? So there's a conversation with the senior investor. If we advance it, it goes to phase two. Phase two is what I call real work. It's desktop work. We try really hard not to be going out externally at the phase two level. You're trying to develop that view internally without being influenced outside. You're building out a model. What are the three or four key thesis points? And that's generally a couple weeks of work. That's written up. Again, have a conversation with the senior investor. Should we progress this or not? And then we go to phase three. Phase three, we really, really go deep. And typically, we're going external. We're going to meet with the company. We're going to talk to experts. Maybe we'll talk to some people on the short side. You've developed something that you believe, and now you're trying to kill it. Are there good reasons this is off? And it depends, but that can be many weeks, sometimes months in that stage, depending on what's necessary to get to that view. And then after you've completed that phase three, that's when something that would be recommended to the portfolios. And we have what we call policy group meeting, investment committee meeting. And one of the things that we do is everybody votes in advance before that meeting. So you don't know the views of others going in. We have the discussion, the interrogation, and then at the end, you're given the chance to change your vote. And then it's on the individual analyst to buy that in their paper portfolio and on the portfolio manager to buy it in the strategy. Now, to your original question, last year, 2022, we had, I think there was 425 names that came through at the phase one level, 11 of them made it into the portfolio. So that gives you a sense of the winnowing process going through that. What does the typical portfolio structure look like? We're not didactic around particular hard risk rules or parameters. We think about sizing across four dimensions. So the first is discount to intrinsic. Second is what are the range of outcomes here? Does it have right tail, left tail skew? Third is size and liquidity. And then fourth is correlation. 
And a target for us would be two and a half percent of capital in the global strategy. So when we're at ideal, we'd have a 40 stock portfolio. You're never at ideal because you're always moving in and out of positions. And so if you step back, we've got 35 analysts across the globe. Each of them is running, call it a 10 stock paper portfolio. So that's 350 names. And in the strategy, we're seeking to narrow that down to call it 60, 70 high conviction positions in the global strategy. How does the decision-making work on the portfolio? So in our global strategy, there are three portfolio managers. I'm one of the three, and I have overall accountability for the strategy and risk. Each of us manages a sleeve, roughly of equal size. And it's an independent decision for each of those, of the most compelling ideas that they're seeing around the globe. Now, we're in the same investment committee meetings. Every week, we're meeting with each of our five teams and interrogating what they're seeing, sharing what we're seeing, driving research direction. We're in the same risk meetings. But we all show up with somewhat different perspectives of the world. And on top of that, I have overall accountability for the strategy. So if there's something that I view as off from a risk perspective or a sizing correlation, then I have responsibility to change that. How do you think about the duration of your investments? We model and we frame in our discussions over a four-year investment horizon. And I think one of the things that we try to do across everything is to play the long game. And so I'm a big believer in game selection from are you scraping to the millisecond to completely on the other end of the continuum, the, the person that has an infinite holding period. And we're very much in that long-term, multi-year holding horizon. We've owned some of our stocks in Japan for 20 years. I've owned some companies in the US for a decade plus. Ideally, you want to own them forever if they can continue to compound at an above average rate. But that's the perspective that we try to apply to every investment and how we construct the portfolio. You mentioned a couple of times having a lot of data. So you have data of each of these individual shadow portfolios. You have data on the main portfolio. How have you thought about using all this data to integrate into your process and prove what you're doing? I'll take that in two dimensions. I think the core is the paper portfolio system. And we've been using that for 30 years. And that's really the flight simulator. We use that to identify the talent within the team to really zero in on the superpowers of the individual. And so we have a dedicated performance attribution team. All of our analysts get scorecards every six months. These are 25, 30 page documents. It's going to look at success ratio. It's going to look at winner loser skew. It's going to look at slugging percentage. It's going to look at that voting track record from the investment committee meetings. It's going to show you a visual graph of every recommendation and how you've managed that position sizing-wise based on how the stock is traded. And everything in those paper portfolio trades based on actual volume and VWAP from when you execute the orders. It's subject to the same compliance provisions that we have. So it's real. And we use that. And it's interesting because you, you see some people are very good at things that they work themselves. Some people demonstrate a lot more skill at 
ideas and they're more objective on the ideas of others. Some people can be very good at idea generation, but not necessarily pulling the trigger. And so there's so many nuances to that, but it gives you really clear, objective data to work with as you're making those decisions. And it's the same thing for the analyst to get that feedback and to use it. Now, we've been doing that for ages since inception. It's gotten more sophisticated over time as we have better tools. One of the things, and this is a newer area, which we call decision analytics. And so what decision analytics is doing is it's taking all that data and it's looking at particular behavioral biases. We actually contracted with a third-party software firm and we just got this amazing set of data and running that through. And all of our senior decision makers, we've now run through this. And it comes back and it gives you this pattern recognition of your own biases. I've demonstrated certain biases. And you have this construct in your head. I'll give you an example. So my view is that the riskiest position is your newest position. You've got the least insight. And so I have tended to scale into a position when I'm undertaking a new position. Turns out, data says that's not right, for me in particular. If it's sufficiently good enough to meet that buy hurdle, I should buy it with full aggression. The scaling thing is detracting value and it quantifies it, right? And so one, it's fantastic to have that objective mirror back to you. But then we take the second step, which is we've now programmed in what we call nudges. And so if I'm initiating a position, it can send me a nudge and say, that hasn't worked for you. And it's nice to have that there as a prompt to you because you get so into it in the moment that getting those objective reads, I found to be really valuable. This is a newer area for us, this area of decision analytics, but it's an area that we've been investing in leading in quite a bit recently. I'm really curious about signal versus noise in a lot of this. So why don't we start with, in your assessment of shadow portfolios, how do you determine that the outcome, say the performance that you're seeing, is the signal? and not something that's happening in the input that you're missing because there's noise in markets. Ted, there's tons of noise in that data, to be clear, right? And I think to really come to a quality view of a track record, you probably need a decade, decade plus, to be fair. So we're looking at this data over these rolling three and five year periods, and we have to be clear that there is noise in there and not to over-extrapolate that. But it's also a tool a valuable tool to help make those decisions as an individual and as one that's making decisions on people. And so we try to use it with that humility. As you look at managing the organization and assessing the different skills that analysts have, how have you evolved the roles of the people on your team based on what you've learned from the shadow portfolio analytics? I've been at Orbis for 20 plus years and took over January last year as president of the firm, head of the investment efforts. And one of the things that I believe in a lot and that I've been really trying to lean into is making sure that we're really playing to our strengths. And I think people evolve to certain roles that may or may not really suit them or their superpowers. And to really believe in that and lean into that, whether it's some people are fantastic at idea generation. Others are really great at really going deep and getting into that last 5% where the magic is at and finding that true insight. But there are shambles when it comes to putting it all together. 
some people are fantastic at managing people. And so let's be objective with humility at looking at that data and having real conversations with each individual and making sure that we're aligning that as much as possible. And the tighter and the better that we do that, I think the better the outcomes. I'm a big believer of just grinding for those small improvements at each dimension. And over time, that compounds to be something quite meaningful. I'd love to know how you experiment with that. Let's say that someone, the data shows is a good idea generator. You could put them in a role of idea generation, but you could also find that they're really good at idea generation when they're spending their time looking at all these different ideas because that's when they realize what the good ones are. So just with that as a little example, how do you take the idea generator and try to tilt it so that that strength benefits the firm as much as possible? The short answer is test and verify. And so I think one of the areas that you see quite a bit is somebody's in a particular domain. They know industrials better than anyone else. And they're very, very good at that. And it could be to a particular geography. But when they start to go adjacent, either geographically or adjacent sectors expanding out, the signal that's coming through is diminished, right? And it's natural. Doing that thing really well is magic. Let's recognize that game selection and let's really play to that. At the same time, you don't want to discourage somebody that wants to go adjacent and wants to play with that. As a leader, I want to have the space for people to do that, but recognizing the very important trade-offs. And then if you come back to the decision analytics when you have a relatively low turnover or longer holding periods, how do you get enough data in those entry exit decisions so that you're comfortable saying in your case, well, I probably shouldn't scale. I should just take this position on full right up front. It's tied to your earlier question, but you have to be really mindful of that. Myself, you've got 20 plus years of data. You can have greater conviction. And our data scientists as well will come back and express that as well in terms of whether or not they feel like there's enough information in that to actually be putting forward recommendations. And so the strength of those recommendations can vary. But in my engagements directly with the analysts as I'm mentoring them up and developing over time is you just have to be mindful of that because in your earlier years, you are working off a much, much smaller data set. You just have to be honest about that. I'm big at looking at the trajectory and so by that meaning, we all make mistakes. We make a lot of mistakes, but how do we improve our own algorithm based on that? How do we adapt based on that? And so at the younger levels, you're really looking at seeing how that's tracking and how they're adapting to that or not. I find there can be signal in that. What are some of the ways over time that your portfolios maybe looked, as you say, different because you went about things differently? I wasn't at Orbis at the time. You go all the way back to inception. 1990, Japan was 45% of the world index, and we had zero. That was right from the start. You go back to 2008, we had quite a big position in the managed care companies. And so the Aetna's and United Healthcare and Humana's of the world. And the reason was that Obama was going to get elected, and the fear was we were going to go to universal healthcare. When you get the calls from clients like, don't you? follow the news, you see that they're going to go to universal healthcare. And we had, I think, more than 10% of the global strategy in that sector at the time on a view fundamentally 
that they played a really critical role and that wasn't going to change dramatically. And in fact, there was a chance that that could flip and it would become a better business because of some of the legislation that was in play. You can go back years when we were buying some of the memory companies, when the memory industry was consolidating and literally companies were going bankrupt. And our view was that that consolidation actually was going to lead to a healthier DRAM business. But it was tough in the moment, which I think ties back to the core of you have to have the ability to take those independent views. You have to have an aligned client base that allows you to do it because your time horizon is only going to be as long as their time horizon. And then you have a culture internally and a set of incentives that reinforce being able to take those decisions. And as you look today or the last couple of years and looking forward, you know, we've had this big growth versus value style discrepancy and curious how that's played through in the structure of some of your portfolios. It's been a massive headwind. I mean, if you look past last decade, I mean, the most prevailing trend in the market, I think, has been the cost of capital and just a massive government intervention. I wrote last year that it looked like a sea change was upon us. Last year was quite rewarding because it was the first time that you were seeing real price discretion coming off the NF teams and meme craze. But then interestingly, this year, we revisited it. Now, I do think regardless of what's happened this year, the cost of money has changed. I think that creates a much more conducive environment for fundamental stock pickers. And I think you can look at the data going back historically to regimes with different interest rates and what the opportunity set is for alpha. Our data tells us that the spreads, meaning you take the top part of the market versus the bottom part of the market, and you just look at the relative valuation differences, and it's on different metrics, are not as wide as they've been at the most extreme, but it's pretty extreme. And so we want to lean into that. You see that in how we're positioned. We've been in Japan for a long time, but last year we started to really see some change. It's been cheap for a long time, but fundamentally starting to see some real change with regard to delivering for shareholders. Tokyo Exchange came out and told companies that were trading at less than book value that they needed to work on that, and they started doing it. How long have people been talking about that? I've never seen our Japanese team as excited as they are right now. It's a combination of years and years of apathy and underperformance really cheap valuations, but for the first time, actually seeing constructive change. I'd love to hear if there's an example, maybe it's a stock level example that brings all of this together. So everything from the alignment up top in duration to the shadow portfolios to how you're thinking about intrinsic value. In the US, our largest position is a company called Fleetcore. Fleetcore is a payments company. About half of the business is fuel-related payments. So if you're a small business owner and you've got drivers out in the field, they use this card to gas up. And then the other half is software-driven accounts payable. So for small businesses to facilitate that. The business, if you look historically and you take a long-term view, has had phenomenal returns on capital and equity. And historically, it's traded at call it 20, 30% premium to the market. Today, it trades at 11 or 12 times. Okay, so why? It's clearly out of favor. That's been changing more recently, but clearly out of favor. That's a situation that we'd be drawn to. Looking at the long-term history, 
something that's deeply out of favor, a very clear, well-articulated bear case. And by the way, my favorite types of situations are where the bear case is actually the bull case. When you understand the business well enough that you can flip that on its head. So we spend a lot of time really going deep and understanding the business, understanding their toll business that they have in Brazil, to their fuel card business in the US, to their emerging EV business in the UK and Europe. So just the premise of deep fundamental bottoms up work, first principles. The CEO of the company is what I call a moneymaker. He's been running the business for 20 years. He owns a billion dollars of stock. So alignment, what are his incentives? His incentives are to allocate capital well, which he's done historically. I think he'll do that in the future. The bear case is what happens as we transition to EVs. Well, there's two. One is just a cyclical one, and that's just having a longer-term time horizon to say, this is a cyclical factor where small, medium-sized businesses are under incremental pressure. It's a cyclical factor that will normalize in time. That's pretty straightforward. The deeper factor is really understanding the business deep enough and well enough to understand that there's actually quite a meaningful opportunity here, which is they have an existing relationship with all of these fleet owners. It's very unusual and it's rare that as you transition, that you, on one swoop, transition your entire fleet from ICE to EV. You transition over time. So who has that relationship? Who's in the best position to manage it? By the way, who's out in the market and has developed or developing the software to actually track the charging? If you've got your car at home and you're charging up at home, you need to be reimbursed for that. You need software to track that and to facilitate that happening. They have that. We can look at their business in Europe and we can see clearly that the economics on that are actually on par, in fact, better than their core combustible business. And in fact, as the market comes to that view over the long term, that's not going to happen like that, but over the long term, what was viewed as the bear case, we think will turn to actually be the bull case because they are uniquely well positioned. That's just in that core fuel business. They also have the software business. Most of the businesses in this space trade at 25, 30 times. We own it at 11 times. And so I think ultimately the CEO will say, if it's not being recognized, he'll figure out how to take an action to unlock that. And we know that we're aligned and he'll do that in time. I don't think a lot of people would debate that it's a reasonably good quality business, but a lot of people don't want to step into it because of the time horizon factor. So on the way from 20 or 25 times down to 10, 11, 12 times where it is today, usually you get to 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, 12. I'm curious, when did this find its way into your portfolio? It's a good question, Ted. It wasn't at 11. I want to say it was more around 15 times. We can see that in the data. We tend to be early, right? There's so many investors that talk about alignment of interest and talk about the value of duration of capital. When you put together these sort of business principles with your investment model, why do you think more people don't do it? It's hard. It's really hard. And in concept, everybody talks about alignment, but to actually do it requires some pain. When we launched the refundable fee, it was with consternation. We had to reserve on our balance sheet for many years. We had to forego profitability for a number of years, not just to build on our balance sheet, but to build up in the client reserve. I think if you were at 
most partnerships and you proposed it, I'm not sure that it would go over that well. You really do have to think longer term. And so I think that's a big part of the reason, right? It's difficult to do. It comes at cost to yourself. You have to bet on yourself in a huge way. We don't generate operating cash flows unless we generate alpha. And so it's a big bet on yourself and your ability to do that. And that's incredibly focusing too. I've seen that in the paper portfolios, by the way, too. When I'm recruiting and I talk to analysts, I describe it. And some analysts, they literally lean in and they get really excited. Like, really? You do that? That's fantastic. And some, you can tell, they just are getting nervous, right? They lean back and like, well, when exactly does that start? And the great thing about that is we're not for everybody, but we're a phenomenal place for a certain type of person and a certain type of client. And that alignment's awesome. But it promotes that self-selection because it's giving you a signal right up front. Either this is something I really gravitate to or don't. What are the things that you would like to be doing, whether it's analytically or with your team that you think you'll get to in the next five years that aren't present today? I love seeing people succeed. My two passions are investing and people, developing people. And so looking forward five years is cultivating people who are doing it better than you gives me great satisfaction. I won't stop doing it because it's just what I love doing, but helping cultivate them to see them go full cycle and thrive playing to their superpowers is something that I want to see and gives me a lot of satisfaction. Great. Well, Adam, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So something that I've been leaning in quite a bit, and this is coming out of COVID, is just live entertainment, right? So whether it's a sporting event or a concert, I've been taking my son, my son's in middle school, took him to an Olivia Rodrigo concert. We went to see Little Nas X in San Francisco. That was quite the event. My wife and I went to see Dave Chappelle, who's the GOAT. So yeah, I've been leaning into live entertainment. What's your biggest pet peeve? So in life, it's really simple. It's just a lack of courtesy, simple please and thank yous, and a lack of gratitude. We just have so much to be grateful for. What investment mistake have you made that you'd never make again? Man, there's many. Probably the one that stings the most goes back to the GFC. I'll never forget it was right in the middle of the GFC. I was in the office on a Sunday night and I got a call from our broker at Goldman. And she said, we've got the whole trading desk set up. We're trading contracts contingent on whether or not Lehman files by midnight tonight or not. And we're here to serve. And I remember hanging up the phone thinking, wow. And the next morning we had an investment committee meeting to make a decision as to whether or not we were going to add or sell our position in AIG. And we decided to add to it. The mistake, which I'll never forget, is the difference between liquidity and solvency. We spent so much time, Ted, on the fundamental bottoms up of the credit. They had insured these AAA portfolios and we were convinced they were money good. Problem is they have to post collateral based on marks. And that got them in a lot of trouble. And we know the rest of that story. But just the difference between liquidity and solvency. And I think just We pride ourselves on being contrarian, but it's not just about being contrarian. It's also being right. You don't get paid just to be different. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So I have to say the founders of Orbis, Will and Alan Gray, I've known them 
since I was 22 years old and they've had a big influence on me. I'll talk specifically about Alan. I mean, Alan is really one of our generation's greatest investors that, at least in US circles, nobody knows. And the opportunity to work alongside and learn from him, I think it's been amazing. And more than an investor, just as an entrepreneur, as a philanthropist, as a father, as a husband, he hit full cycle. And I'm very grateful for that. He was very tough and he set a really high standard, but that brought out the best in people. And then the second person I have to mention is Sabin Streeter. So Sabin Streeter was a partner at the Sprout Group, which was DLJ's venture capital group. He was an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. And he was also a big supporter of SEO, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And I met him when I was in college, when I was 19 years old. He came to Chicago and I was terrified. And he immediately took a shine to me. And not only did he accept me in the program, which was game-changing for me, but he said, you have to come to my firm, to DLJ. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was an amazing fit. And the biggest thing is he believed in me before I had that belief. And belief in a young person is just a priceless gift. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So that's my grandfather, who's my hero. I mean, he dropped out of school when he was in seventh grade and it's the hardest working person I've ever seen. So it's really just testament to hard work and generosity. There was a lot of dysfunction in my family and he was the one person that was always there for everybody, giving of himself always. And it's something that's just deeply imbued in me. Adam, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Culture, culture, culture. I started my career doing distress turnaround investing. So all I cared about was hard assets, <laughs> contracts. And then I came to the public side. And I think what I've really learned is great companies, not just companies that you invest in, but as I think about Orbis, it's all about the people and the culture. And that's where the magic is. And I wish that I would have leaned into that much earlier because that's where it's at. Adam, thanks so much for sharing this really interesting structure and alignment and everything you've done at Orbis. Thank you, Ted. It was great. Very grateful. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at capitalallocators.com to apply for one of the slots.